a show 40 episodes in the making, and the one that you've been waiting on. Get ready for the first Q&A episode of the Indie Ball Report podcast. Episode 41, and as you may be able to guess, we're doing something special today. Oh yeah, real special. Q&A episode. Yeah, it might be a special event. This doesn't happen often, as this is our first, the inaugural one, if you would. We're really excited to get that going. 100%, yeah. But before we dive headlong into your questions, which we have about 21 to 20 of them, roughly about 20. Roughly, so, yeah. So, really excited about that. Thank you for all the questions. And uh, we're just going to run through a couple of updates real quick. And then we will dive into your question. So let's get started with some updates quickly on the McCoy Stadium situation. It was announced earlier this week that there's going to be a lot more development in Pawtucket. So much development that's going to be about $400 million worth. Now, this doesn't directly involve McCoy Stadium. However, it will affect it. As of the moment, it's still technically just a proposal. However, the two main characters we've seen reappearing in this saga being the governor, Riamundo, and Stephen Pryor. They were both at this event, unveiling all of this in the Tidewater section, so right along the river. It looks like it has uh, local and state support, and if that's the case, then I imagine it'll go through fairly easily. Yeah. Uh, these developments will bring in 200 housing units, so assume a bunch of condominiums and things like that. 100,000 feet in retail slash restaurant space, so I assume that'd be like a large kind of outdoor mall, uh, maybe like an outlets type thing, and then a bunch of restaurants, stuff like that. Uh, 200,000 office space, so you'll also have, an, I imagine that'd be one or two office parks in that general area with that much space. Indoor sports facility, so I'm not sure what exactly that would entail. That was the most description we got, so that could just be maybe some indoor fields, basketball court, maybe a hockey ring, something like that. Something like that, yeah. And then the crown jewel of this whole project, and where I imagine most of this money is going to go towards, a 7.5,000 seat soccer stadium. Now, this is where it becomes related to McCoy. Because if you remember, of the six proposals for McCoy, two of them involved either tearing McCoy down and building a soccer stadium on that site, or just terraforming the stadium to become a soccer stadium. I would imagine if slash when this goes through you will see those proposals kind of disappear off the table, knocking it down to four. As of now, any decision on McCoy still looks like it's uh, about a month away. So early in the new year was the timeline that we're still given. So I assume that means January to early February. Yep. Possibly a little later than that. Back onto this whole Tidewire development. Everything, if it goes according to plan, it gets approved all in all. Everything should be done around 2020 particularly the soccer stadium would be done in time for United Soccer League's minor league soccer right. for their season to start in 2020 so, or 2022, rather my mistake. So that would be that. And really the question that I think gets posed with something like this is with that much money tied up, because a lot of this will be public money, I believe there was going to be a tax levied on the businesses and offices in that area that would raise about 90 million of the money back for the actual, for the city. Right. With that much money getting invested into that area, how much of how much more money are we going to see put towards McCoy? Yeah, I think that's a, a very fair question. I think that is what needs to be answered here. However, I do think that it's a good thing for baseball and McCoy, at least from an outsider's perspective, because at the very least, McCoy here is getting these, uh, getting one an updated area 
That's going to draw people in that's very close uh, to the actual stadium. And the other thing that's very interesting that I could see happening as a result of this is McCoy getting done rather quickly and being kind of lumped into this similar idea here. So I think it's a, you know, a kind of a two part deal, but I think you're, you're right to raise the concern that it's very possible. You might not have the money left over in the budget here to kind of refurbish, you know, McCoy. So I think that's a, a very good question. However, I do believe that if this does go through, McCoy will be part of this revitalization. Yeah, I think McCoy is eventually going to get to the kind of point where you will see them uh, become a draw or will have an impact in this kind of new form of Pawtucket. I think you're right with that. It will become that kind of thing. More so than that, though, my concern is if we're just going to kind of ignore the whole concert venue idea and the tearing it down thing, because I think the even the one tear it down idea was to build like a water park and a whole other thing that's similar to what this Tidewater thing's going to be. Right. I think you kind of can ignore that. And we're just going to focus on the two baseball ones for at least the time being. The affiliated one seems to be in doubt, especially with Major League Baseball's whole vendetta against minor league teams. Yep. For whatever reason they decide. Yeah, whatever reason they've gone after minor league teams. I think now we got to look to the affiliated one, and that's clearly going to involve Frank Bolton. And I think we could kind of take a lesson from High Point and from Gastona, how he operates, at least in the recent past with things. And typically it's, I'm going to own it, and then I'm going to hand it over to local ownership, which who knows if we're going to find quality, solid, financially stable local ownership. And even more so than that, we see what happens when he doesn't find that. Look at New Britain. It's a very similar thing, an older stadium with a recently departed former affiliated team Yep, that's going to be kind of far away from all these other ones. I mean, New Britain was obviously much closer to, say, a Long Island and a Somerset, and really all the teams in general, as opposed to Pawtucket, that's going to be some hundred plus miles further away now. And that's just going to be kind of a concern of mine going forward, because obviously he's not the kind of guy that's going to just throw money into a losing effort. He's going to target different things, especially with, as we'll talk about in a little bit like a little bit more, right. Mobile not being completely off the table. Mesquite had just fallen through. It's clear they want more expansion, looking for more. And we'll talk about Ottawa, too, in just a second, how that could be a possibility. I think that's something that we're going to have to kind of just keep an eye on with that. Right, I think that's a really good point and also I think what hurts the case for it being an Atlantic League team at the least is you also have how much Frank Bolton really likes that Atlantic City area as well. Mm. And so you have all these Ottawa and all these other places that are very alluring and I think it makes McCoy a less a less attractive option for the Atlantic League. One, because McCoy is in in an area that they're kind of moving away from if you look at how they've been expanding, right? They haven't really hit that New England corridor. They've stopped basically mid-Atlantic New York region there. Yeah, it definitely seems like they're trying to go for that sunbelt. And actually, we have a Q&A question on that, just like I said in a little bit, that's going to be relating to expansion into the sunbelt. And I think that's going to be another thing. I think they want to go for those newer markets, especially with one of the main problems being in New England is you have a lot of summer collegiate leagues that do very well for themselves, as as you already have a lot of affiliated minor league ball. So putting an indie team up there, you're kind of already flooding a flooded market. You know, you're 
Right. I, I agree. The only reason I, I do, I am optimistic here is because you do have a lot of leagues. I could see a frontier league taking mm. a shot at this to, because they do have so many teams that are in Canada or in this Northeast corridor here. So I could see that a little bit more than the Atlantic league. And also they don't have to put as much work into McCoy for a frontier league. They can do you know, a little bit less work on it renovation wise anyway. Keep an eye on and see how this progresses. Obviously, we'll have more in 2020 to talk about it, and we will discuss that further later on. And if it wasn't a Q&A episode, we could keep going, but we need to get to the meat of the episode, so let's kind of run through these other three last updates real quickly. Gastonia. They started to construct their stadium this week. Concrete foundation is being poured, and the steel supports, so the frame of it, should be going up in January as long as everything stays on schedule, keeps on pace, and they are certainly on pace for their 2021 opening day. So everything looks good there in North Carolina. Over to Mobile, the council put was putting the two groups to a vote to decide who's going to get this lease. And that vote has been postponed for a week, so we'll see that in the beginning of next week. I believe the 11th was the date I had seen, or saw rather. We'll know then as to who's going to get it. However, at the moment, the group that currently holds the lease, the non-Atlantic League uh, ally, I suppose it is, is currently in the lead. So we're looking like it's going to be more of a high school baseball, college baseball facility that does a bunch of other events. So like, um, I guess a bunch of uh, expos, a bunch of uh, light shows, a bunch of community events like that. That seems to be the leading candidate at the moment. However, the Atlantic League bid wall down is not out yet. Right. And I think that actually would be the better for Mobile area. I mean, I think it fits better to have it be a high school collegiate uh, kind of field where I think the community could get more use out of it, but certainly the Atlantic League could fit there as well. We'll have to see what happens. Exactly. And it's just one of those things we discussed it kind of in depth last week when we said the attendance really isn't good and Southern markets are touch and go and heat's a major factor with that too. And the stadium is kind of so-so. So it's, again, that's a wait and see one there. So... We'll move now to the final thing we have to update before we get to the Q&As. Ottawa. So we got some new news on Ottawa. We'll go into a lot more detail when we get to the Ottawa section of our question and answers because we got like three or four questions on that. But just quickly to cover it, basically, Canson OCG look like the the front runners now almost assuredly to get the lease. Uh, there's going to be a memorandum of understanding. We go through all that in one of the Gastona episodes there. there. I think it's 23 is the one that it is. But that, And more importantly than all of that, you will see uh, them begin to negotiate a lease if the memorandum gets done next week, which it should be. Uh, base rent's going to be $125,000. It'll be they'll add inflation on after the third year. It's going to be a 10-year-long lease with two five-year renewals, so it's very similar to what um, the champions had. And yeah, they're eyeing for a 2021 return to either the Frontier League or the Atlantic League, and. Uh, yeah, that's about where they're at right now. Again, we'll do more of a discussion, an in-depth thing on that in just a moment when we get to the Ottawa section of the Q&A. But, being that we talk about it so much, and being that we promoted this Q&A so much, and we've made you wait like 10 minutes to get to it, let's dive right into the Q&A now. About the Q&As. I was not smart enough to write down who asked which question, <laughs> but all the questions that we received are in here. So, you will hear your question. You will know who you'll know your question. I at least would assume. 
Yeah, thanks for the question. Yeah, we appreciate it. Of course, the support is necessary, vital, and something we're really happy to have. And I think we're both very excited to get this going. Yeah, 100%. So, the very first question of the very first Q&A of the Indie Ball Report podcast is as follows. How will the Frontier League stream their games? I had asked Steve uh, Tasler, who is the uh, deputy commissioner of the Frontier League, because I know a lot of former Can-Am people were wondering, because they had the whole central hub, I think it was Can-Am League TV, right. that would stream all those games, and a lot of other leagues do that. Really, I think it's the American Association that does it, and then a couple of the more minor leagues, uh, the Empire Pro League, the Pacific Association, all of them. Right. Uh, I know the, the Atlantic League... For example, they just go with YouTube streams, and then I think the Frontier League did that. So it was very disorganized. So I had asked, you know, what's the plan for streaming games? And he had said that the Frontier League is planning on a central hub for streaming. They're negotiating with uh, various different websites and hosting sites to host all these things. So I imagine we're going to see something very similar to what the Can-Am League had. So to answer your question, there's going to be another central hub. It will probably come out close to the season. And we will then have all the games, so about seven a night for most nights. They'll be posted up there, and you would just use it the same way you would any other site. Yeah, that, that's going to be really great if they do that. Because like you said, when it's in this central hub format, it is fantastic. It's easy to get to the games. It's convenient. You just plug it in and you're good to go. You don't have to worry about, oh, I got to download this site. Maybe I got to pay for it. Maybe I don't. You know, those kind of things. You can really just focus in on watching the games and enjoying that experience. Yep. And they're just easy to find. That's oh, the yeah. thing that makes it so much better. Because I know for me, dozens of times I went to find Atlantic League streams. I go onto YouTube. I can't find the stream. It's just so much easier when it's all there and I could click on it go okay this stream is working this one isn't let me go to the next one and you know it's just a lot easier it's almost like uh almost like an NFL uh, red zone type thing where I could just kind of quickly go around from which one to which one to which one. You yeah, know? that's the other thing, the accessibleness of it. You could watch you know, each game, a little bit of each game all in the same spot, so it's great. Exactly. Now, different time zones too. Yeah. One game's over, you can flick over to another one. They'll probably only be in the sixth or the seventh inning, so it'd be nice to have that. Question number two. What were the results of the Ottawa Disposal Draft? Three of the teams officially released who they had on their own website, the two teams that didn't, unsurprisingly, are the two New Jersey teams. Uh, both of the Dorso-owned teams, they said, no, we're not going to release that. Fair enough. They're entitled to do that. However, what they have to do is say if we're going to pick up their option for the following season or not. So I checked on the transaction list for the Frontier League, and two former Ottawa players on each side were listed under options we're accepting for the following season. So I think it is fairly safe to say that these two players for New Jersey and these two players for... Um, Sussex were the two selections from the Ottawa Disposal Draft, and this will play into a little bit later on when we get to Ottawa talking about it. One question was, "What well, do they still exist, or what's the deal with them?" <laughs> right? Yeah. So this a will, fair question. I mean, it is a very fair question, and we'll get to more of that in just a little bit here. But in the meanwhile, the results of the Disposal Draft: Quebec selected the following players: Philippe Amont, who just had his contract sold to the Toronto Blue Jays. So yep. good for him. Congratulations. Yep. Uh, Zach. Venaro and Nick DeTringo. So those are three guys. Yep. Uh, Amont, obviously pitcher of the year in the Can-Am. So Fantastic player, yep. Very good year for him. Venaro, pretty pretty average player for the league. I Middle mean, of the road, yep. Yep. 
But for Quebec, they need all the help they can get. Oh, yeah. And then Nick Detringo, he came in kind of late into the year. He had, I believe, one or two Player of the Week awards. And then he had a couple of cold streaks in there, too. So his stat line doesn't look as good. But he is a decent player. He could definitely help out in Quebec and try and get them to rebound after a very poor one of the worst years they've had in a very long time last year. Yeah, like you're saying, uh, Nick is a kind of a streaky kind of player, yeah. and I think that would be a really interesting uh, addition there to have for him in Quebec, like you're saying. Anything, any help at this point that Quebec can get, they will certainly need coming up for this year to try to rebuild off of a poor season last year. Mm-hmm. Moving to Rockland, Matt Vallen and Michael Baca are the two there. Baca spent some time in High Point last year. Yeah. Uh, Matt Vallen, again, pretty average guy. Baca, believe about around 265 in Quebec, roughly there. So again, another fairly average guy, but both of them are exempt from the age limit, which is why a lot of guys that didn't get selected, or at least don't appear to be selected, uh, weren't. Uh, a lot of teams are scared of that using their four slots. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that you got to be careful of. And for these two guys, you know, you pick up a young guy, a couple of young guys, and they're good to go there. You know, you, they can maybe they'll progress. Maybe they'll become even better than they were. Or maybe they'll just be solid middle of the road guys. Yep. Three Rivers, Malik Collymore and Heath Bowers. Although, practically speaking, they picked no one as they did not accept the option for either player for this upcoming season. A bit surprising, Collymore was a decent player for Ottawa last year. And more so than that, even, Heath Bowers was a solid enough pitcher. Yeah, I know. Both guys are pretty good, and they did have good seasons last year for Ottawa. So it's interesting to see why they didn't, especially for Three Rivers. They weren't, I mean, they were a very good team last year, but they weren't the greatest in, in the uh, in the Can-Am League, which is obviously now the Frontier League, and you would think they'd want to stock up, uh, given the fact that they need talent to compete against new teams this year. So, I don't know, a very interesting move not to pick up those guys that they selected. It, they might have been better off selecting somebody else, you know, if they're going to do that. See, that's the thing. I would have taken someone else if you weren't going to pick up their options. I mean, they were a very good team. 58 wins yeah. is a solid year. They're only three back of Sussex, who said, I believe the the, either the league record or the league very record? close to it yeah. for wins in a season with 61 last year. So, yeah, so any other year, they would have won it. Yeah, I they would have won it. You're right. So, yeah. it's a, they had us all year. Now, obviously, they disappointed in the postseason. They, they did, yeah. They did drag the Jackals to five, which they ultimately lost. And obviously, as the Jackals went on to win everything. <laughs> Clearly. If they have a good enough team. Just some of the options that declined, though, even weren't, like, the best. And I wonder how much that is with the new ownership, or not new ownership, but uh, new people coming in there. Could be. I think that could just be part of it. I mean, they moved uh, Glad for White earlier in the year, so I think think that's something that's, you know, something to watch out for, at the very least, so. Yeah, something to keep an eye on. Yep, so that's them. Now we go to the two New Jersey teams. Sussex picked Keita De La Cruz, and uh, I believe, I hope I do not butcher this, but I probably... uh, Giando Trump. He was an all-star last year. He had a very solid year, Trump. And I do like him as an outfielder. I think he's a solid offensive guy. And he's well enough in the field where he'll definitely help out. Especially with a team that's going to have to make some tough decisions with their uh, four exemption spots. As they have a lot of guys that are going to either be on that cusp of the 28 number or over it, well over it in some cases. Yeah, I think you need people who are going to be exempt from that in order to kind of build this roster up. Unfortunately, with the new 
rule which we both have talked about is not what we wanted to see out of it but the way the things work they're going to need guys who are under this exemption and so i think these two uh are a good good selections particularly like you said adding depth is always a good thing both outfield uh and you know batting wise yep the la cruz i'm the, i'm not that big of a fan of him i didn't really see anything out of him in ottawa that was that good yeah that's true i know i have uh some coaches that are on the same page with me that they're just like they're there's the kid shows me nothing. I'm not as critical on him. I just, I, I wouldn't have used to pick on him. There's other guys there that I would have went with first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could have just picked him up. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think anybody was going to select him if they didn't. So. Yeah. Uh, then New Jersey finally picked Austin Glorios and Trey Martin. So these guys are pretty average guys in my mind. I think they have some benefits, but by and large, again, pretty eh, guys. I would have rather had to cough up one of my exemption spots and picked like uh, Leonardo Regionato instead, or maybe a Jared Mortensen yeah, or someone like yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Those are guys uh, I'm kind of surprised went unpicked. There was a few other ones I was like, oh, really? You didn't get picked up? But... Uh, I think a lot of that is exemption stuff. I think a lot of who was picked. I mean, was there anybody who was actually over the exemption? Uh, Amont. Amont, right. Amont, I think was it. Right, but he's gone now. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, but yeah, no, I think that that's, I mean, obviously, yeah. there's reasons for that. Um, yeah. I mean, Amont, obviously, too, if he comes back, then he's going to come in there. He's going to obviously help out Quebec an awful lot. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a fair one. But the rest of them, it makes sense, right? I mean, it, sh- it shows us how, and this is a great question because it shows us how these uh, teams are going to be constructed in this new Frontier League. These teams are going to be constructed young, and it's just the way it's going to be. Exactly. I mean, you're going to have 10 rookies on the team. You're only going to have four guys that are over the age of 28. And, I mean, right there is over half your roster. I mean, what do you have left? Nine spots? Yeah. So, nine spots of guys that could return that aren't rookies and are uh, not veterans so right so you got this weird middle age not middle age but middle you know 20s kind of guys who yeah. are you know not really experienced but not really rookies so it's an interesting way and you're going to see a lot of player development i think and that's why coaching that's why i think like sussex county is such a big edge because you got a guy like bobby jones who knows how to coach these young guys i mean look what figueroa did uh under oh, yeah. him oh my goodness so yeah i think bobby jones this is advantage to teams that have great coaches oh yeah no definitely uh, so we'll move on now. The question is, who will not return to High Point next year? I know for certain Richie Schaefer is not. He is basically retired. He sent out a thing saying, it looks like my career is done. So, right. Uh, which, fun fact for him, his uh, Twitter name is Dickie Danger. Dickie Danger. I love I that find one. That awesome. That's a good one. I love that. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> so Dickie Danger has gone. No. Uh, John Bromnell, I think he's going to be done. He's 36. He only pitched very briefly at the end of the year for yeah. high point. So I wouldn't expect to see him back. Uh, Mikey Reynolds, another guy, he got signed. He never got into a game. He left Sussex afterwards, but he returned to Sussex after Kansas City cut him loose about a month into the year. Right. I got to expect for him to either, if he is of the, I don't recall exactly how old he is. I think he's 27 or 29, right in that range. Yeah, look it up. And if he is 27, I could see him going back to Sussex for one more hurrah. If not, I could see him finding his way into the American Association, possibly, say, a Texas Air Hogs that are notoriously not good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Mikey Reynolds is a good player. He's a utility guy. Um, He's, you know, he's not a power guy, but he's really, uh, you know, a guy who can hit 
for some average. I mean, he's a good yeah. player. He's a, he's kind of a guy who is also a good glue guy in the locker room. Hmm. Uh, seems to be from what I've uh, seen in Sussex and heard in Sussex. Yeah, I mean, obviously you're gonna keep bringing a guy back. It's gonna be something about him that's appealing. So yeah, oh, he's pretty young. What is it? 1990. So he is. He is going to be 30. He's going to be 30, yeah. Yeah, so, so over the age limit, so probably American Association. Probably, unless unless, uh, unless Bobby, Bobby Jones decides yeah. to bring him back. But Back over to high point now, uh, John Nestor. He was, again, a late pick out there. He's kind of known the Atlantic League. He was in Claiborne for a while. So American Association again there. I'd look for him to go back there, yeah. especially now they have Logan Moore, I imagine. He's going to be kind of the primary guy. Uh, Quincy Lattimore was a question mark because I know he had his contract purchased during the year. And then he wound his way back into high point after that season had ended. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him get a shot either in Asia or in Mexico. I think that would make a lot of sense there. That would make a lot of sense, yeah. Jared Mitchell's a guy where he just never really stood out either in his time in Sugarland nor in his time in high point. So he's a guy where I don't look to see him back. I wouldn't be surprised to see it, but. At the same time, he's not on the roster. It's not shocking. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised there. Uh, Craig Stam, another guy. He got moved from Southern Maryland to High Point. I could see him back. I could equally see him having his contract purchased. He was one of the most underrated pitchers in the Atlantic League last year. He put up terrific numbers in his time in both Southern Maryland and in High Point. I could see High Point wanting him back. Just like I could see him, again, pitching over in Korea or China or Mexico or another foreign league. Yeah, I could see him getting picked up by a foreign league easily. Yep. Uh, Trevor Frank, very similar. Again, another underrated pitcher. Again, I would imagine High Point wants him back. Just like I can imagine a foreign league wanting to grab him, too. Right. Uh, and then the last guy is Joe Van Meter, who, again, falls into the same category as the other two guys. Very solid pitcher. Very underrated pitcher this past season. And... Uh, yeah, I could see him having a foreign opportunity. Yeah, so so one little side note to this uh, high point thing that might be interesting. A guy who I don't know, right? I'm not positive no. on this. Don't quote me on this, but um, the the guy who I could see coming back if he doesn't, and I'm not sure what he's gotten yet for okay. anything, but the one guy I could see coming back because he seemed to have such a good time there is Dante Bichette Jr. if he doesn't get looks. Because yeah. I know he had a good season, but yeah. I don't know. I haven't heard anything. The last I heard, he was not signed yet, and, and the Nationals had not re-signed him. So that's something to watch. If he might already be signed, I might be completely off base. Um, but he's a name to watch, even even if he is signed right now. Mm. If he because if I, it comes to a point where he is a free agent again, at then any it point, would make yeah. a lot. Of, yeah, I could definitely see that. Uh, I'm gonna go to the question I had skipped. What Can Am team former slash sorry, meaning former Can Am teams are now in the front two? Right. Were slash are affected the most by the age restriction. So this kind of goes to what we were saying a little bit ago, and I would have been better to get in for the last question, but, you know, it happens. There's a couple teams. A Rockland to me stands out the most because their pitching staff is about to get decimated. Oh, yeah. Tommy Shirley, gone. Gone, yeah. Uh, Nick Kennedy, gone. Oof. Zoken, gone. And like, just if you go through it, a lot of their starters, too, are just kind of gone. A lot of starters are gone, yeah. Uh, there's some fielders, but not too many. Uh, just when you look at their staff, uh, really their bullpen is now left with Robbie Gordon and uh, Ponto, which are two very good pieces, but losing Zokin is not great. No, losing Kennedy bad. is really not great. Yeah. I mean, that was one of their real strengths was how good of a bullpen they had for a while. Now, starters were always an issue, and that's why they were under 500. They just poor starts, and then their offense wasn't good enough to bail them out. Right. That's the one thing that uh, both... Uh, 
Sussex and to another extent New Jersey I think they're more the offender where their starters were very touch and go especially after the all-star break right. when Reyes kind of started to dip a bit yep they were very kind of touch and go on that but their offense was just so good between Gregor Chirino Harris Marte that they could afford to have this kind of touch and go thing I mean Richard Stock would chip in too Nelson Ward to a much lesser extent, but he'd always kind of come up every once in a while with a clutch hit. Right. So they could get away with it. And obviously, Sussex, if you look at their big hitters, they, you know. Yeah. And they, so, yeah. That, and yeah, so that's why I think my answer to this question would actually be Sussex County, potentially, right? Only yeah, because you're number two on mine. Yeah. Just because they have guys like. Uh, Syriaco and like you're saying, even Mikey Reynolds, yep. they might not be able to bring back. I mean, they just might not be able to bring back these glue guys. Yep, Breland too, he's 29. Yeah, yeah, Breland. So you're you're dealing with guys who are really productive players. Yep. I mean, my goodness, productive players in the Can-Am League that might not be on this roster. I I would say that uh, Syriaco will be there. Obviously, a fan favorite. Yeah, he, he has to be one of those spots. He has to be one of those spots. But he, the problem is, you're talking in spots, right? You're not. They're not going to bring back their. their exactly. You only have four guys that you can bring back, and you got to assume Newell will be back, being that they traded Jose Jose to get to yeah. get a spot back. And Newell is certainly competent. He was one of the better setup men in the league. He was, yeah. Or well, he was their closer, rather. My mistake. Yeah. Jose Jose was that, but they alternated a little bit towards the beginning of the year. Yeah, it was so. yeah, kind of wavered there. But and the other point that I, I think is important to, to hear is that they did have a lot of guys come back from that team that won a championship. And that was part of the reason they were so successful last year. Mm. Is because you had Syriaco come back and because you had other people come back, then you, you're not going to have that this year, right? You're not going to have as many veterans who were there for that championship team. And because of that, you're going to have people who are a lot of new faces. And again, Bobby Jones is fantastic. And I think that he can oh, navigate yeah, no. his way through this. But I just to, to put a cherry on top of it, I do think that he might uh, have a little bit more difficulty early on in the season. I look for them to still be there in the end and certainly make the postseason. But I do think early on in the season, you can see them struggle because they'll have less veterans and less people who know how to win early on in the season yeah no that's that was one of their strengths and why they won 61 games they had a, a lot of experience on that team but again when you just look at it you're gonna also lose like a nick saharian who's a guy yeah. who's been there or you're gonna have to use a spot um a guy like uh, let's see who else are they coronado he wasn't there for too long but still was a effective force there I mean, there's just a lot of guys. Like, uh, I know one of our people that we talk with uh, a lot on social media, Lars Lagar, he's going to be gone. Yeah, he'll be gone, yeah. Because I just don't see them exercising a spot there. Because just among 28 years, you have Lars, you have Brian Newell, you have or had Jose Jose, who got moved out. You have Nate Anton, who's going to be getting close to that. They moved out Frank Duncan. Corey Jones is also on there. Thomas got moved, or Thompson got moved out, rather. Kuzminski's probably not going to be back. Um, James Campbell's not going to be back. Breland's going to probably, you're probably going to want to bring Breland back. Right, yeah. Let's, let's just kind of change the direction of thinking here. So Breland's going to be back. Yep, Syriaco. Syriaco, Newell. Newell. So right there is three or four. Yeah. So of the remaining spots, you're looking at possibly a Mikey Reynolds. Maybe, yeah. Yep, possibly a Nick Saharian. Maybe. Um, let's see. And just to lose either of those guys. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, not to mention Ligares. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, problems. (laughs) Yeah. So already you're kind of, you know, up the creek. Yeah, a little bit. So they're going to, they're definitely going to have their work cut out for them. But Justin is good at his job as well as Bobby. So they're both going to do 
the best they can. Oh, absolutely. They're both professionals and will find a way to get a, a great team fielded, I'm sure. But I think, again, I look early in the year, a little bit of a struggle there. Yep, that uh, Quebec's another team I thought could struggle too. I mean, they struggled without the Royals or with it. Now they're going to because I know for them, the really their best players are the ones that were 28 or older. Like Zach Wilson's <laughs> another true, guy, yeah. and he got moved out to Lincoln for something I don't recall what. Uh, let's see who else. Um, they're one of their lone all stars, uh, Mandalay. He oh, was a very yeah. good player for them. He's going to be out there. Hernandez was another guy. He's probably going to be out there. Uh, there's Carlos Jelena, uh, Sekula. Those two also. Uh, one of their other better pitchers there. There was a starter, too. Or, uh, no, wait, it was Dustin Mulkin. Uh, Mulkin. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Him. He's going to be out, too. So those are just five guys off the bat. That's not including if Amont does come back. So now there's five. Yeah, I could, see, I could absolutely see a, a really bad Quebec team this year to kind of piggyback off of last year because if you lose your best players it's hard although an infusion of youth may help them so yeah I mean just level the field for everybody yeah I mean a a lot of a lot of questions we haven't seen this before so this is new for us as well so a lot of our predictions I think here could be could be a little bit off Uh, not to say that I was so spot on last year but (laughs) but yeah no so they're they're certainly one as far as three rivers goes they're pretty good I mean, to be honest, yeah, they'll be fine. They're, they're, most of their guys are 26, so they've still got a year or two before they have to start really worrying about it. As far as the Jackals go, really their only problem is offseason moves. As yeah. far as guys coming back, supposedly the rumor that I hear going around. Jay Gonzalez is back. Dylan Brammer is back. So Brammer is going to be one of their exemptions. Reese Carlius to be back. Bobby Butler to be back. Demetrius Moore to be back. Second exemption goes to Marte. Okay. Uh, Guerrero back. Agresti back. Tessa Tor back. And David Harris also to be back. So those are okay. the three three vet spots. That, and, that's a good one with David Harris. I mean, he's a good player. And the other rumor that I hear going around, which I can't say where I got it from, but I do trust it a lot. Supposedly, they're getting a 26-year-old pitcher that was in the major leagues not too long ago. Ooh. That could be a very interesting one there. And I honestly, if that happens, they get that guy and he stays for a little bit with the guys that are returning, I could see them repeating. You right, the very Honestly, I'm thinking right now, obviously, wow. without having looked at the, uh, at the Washington Wild things and right. the Lake Erie Crushers roster, I right now like Three Rivers in New Jersey to meet up again in the postseason. Ooh. Although Washington does have Jared Medeiros now after that deal. They do have Medeiros now. Yeah, that's an interesting deal there. But yeah, yeah so I, I do think um, you're right. I mean, obviously, anytime you get an influx of talent like that, the question is, is Conrad Gregor coming back? I think that's an interesting question uh, to pose to you. No word on Gregor. No word. Uh, I know he's uh, going a little bit more hands-on now with the whole uh, training academy thing. Okay. And so I know he did struggle in the postseason and kind of a little bit tail yeah, off towards the bit. end. Yeah. So maybe. I don't know. Maybe the end. Maybe he comes back. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I maybe, think that was touch and go. Maybe we'll get him on for an interview and he can tell us. Probably. I mean, <laughs> probably could work it, which that's going to be another question we have later on. So yeah. let's navigate back to the pace that we were at. How many players stay on an ALPB roster from year to year? Now, this is a question that there's a lot of fluctuation here because it definitely depends on organization and people running it. Um, Typically, though, anywhere from like 10 to 15, normally you'll see at least 50% turnover, if not more. Uh, There's always going to be three or four guys on a roster that are going to be there for forever. Uh, In Somerset, for example, uh, Massey's a guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Kelly's another guy. Oh, yeah. 
those two have been there for forever. Uh, Gonzalez, Rodriguez, those guys have been there for a little bit too. Yeah. Uh, so you'll see guys like that and just constantly coming back because they either produce or they provide some other value. Right. A lot of it is, yeah. So to answer the question directly, I think 10 to 15 is a great number there. Uh, you'll see a ton of turnover. However, there are guys, especially if they become big with fans or big in the community in some way, they wind up staying for a lot of years or if they just get comfortable there and they really produce, like you're saying. So I think that you have, uh, you know, it, it, it fluctuates a lot, but you can have guys who become huge uh, in their own way, in their own understated way on these teams, and they just stay there. They become like forces um, either in the community or on the field or both, and then they just stay. They get comfortable there. They like the lifestyle that they've got as an as a ALPB player. They get paid a little bit more than the Frontier League guys. Although we're not sure about that uh, yep. in terms of what you know is going to happen for this next year. They get mm. paid a little bit more, and they 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 like the situation they're in. Especially if they live in the area, it can be a, a very good situation for a lot of folks. So, uh, like you're saying, it depends. It's very fluid. However, obviously, there's a lot of turnover because guys are looking to get to, to move on. To move and on. Also, you see a lot of turnover just in general when you have oh, coaches yeah. come in a guy that's batting like 260 to be honest there's a lot of guys to bat 260 exactly that and also just throughout the course of the year you're going to see guys come in and out so just because let's say your favorite player is uh, joe van meter we'll use him for example right just because van meter is not on that roster on opening day does not mean he's not going to be on the roster at some point a lot of times you'll see guys go back to players they know i mean look at uh, somerset when they were going through their injury stretch they brought back uh, roy merritt although he never took them out for personal reasons right i believe Olam Rosario also came back I think too. He came back as well, yeah. Um, some other guys for them that had pitched for Somerset previously came back. I mean, it happens fairly often too that you'll see guys kind of return and to where they're comfortable where they played in the past yeah. just because the coaching staff knows them. But in the beginning of the year when you're going through all these scouting camps and all these open workouts and whatnot, you'll often see newer guys get those spots first. We'll move on now to the next question. How trustworthy is Rick White, <laughs> the commissioner of the Atlantic League of Professional Baseball? How much do we trust him? Well, um, what I'll say, I only have uh, secondhand knowledge on this, but I'll say that Rick White is, uh, like any commissioner, beholden to his league and uh, and the interests of his league. So uh, um, he he gives the information that he can in the moment. Uh, sometimes he may give information that uh, sends a little bit of a smoke screen up, but I can't blame can't say I blame him for that because again he is beholden to the needs of his league. So I, I you know if he's not uh, completely trustworthy, it's only because he's doing what's best for the Atlantic League. Exactly, and that's very similar to my answer. He's a commissioner. He works for the league. He works for the teams. And he works generally speaking like that so clearly he's going to want to keep the information close to the vest until he's ready to announce it in his terms and have the answers to any questions and if you have unpopular stuff you don't want to announce that you don't want that leaking out into the public until you're ready for it you want to control how that gets out obviously us being close to the media side and the fan side of things we just want all the information right away as soon as possible. Oh, of course. So we can discuss it, so we can break it down, get angry at it, get happy at it. You know, the whole standard range of emotions. So that's obviously where we're at. Yeah. But generally speaking, I, I trust enough of what he says. He's going to do whatever he can. Obviously, like from what I have with speaking with various owners and league officials and whatnot, 
They're not going to tell you, yeah, no, we're planning on merging a couple of the leagues. That's not their job. Their job is to tell you, no, it's fine. Sky's not falling. Our job, more or less, is to find people that go, yeah, no, they're lying. The the sky's falling. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, and and the thing is, is that I think, again, Rick White has done a good job. Oh, yeah, no, he's done very well. I mean, got the partnership figured out, got how many teams expansion-wise in. Everything looks looks to be on the up and up at the moment. And yeah, everything looks to be trending upward for the Atlantic League right now. So I would say that even with the loss of New Britain, which kind of was more of an Atlantic League strategic move than anything else. Yeah, and that more or less falls on Frank Bolton than Rick White. Rick yeah, White can only do so much. Uh, if one of his owners say, I'm done, then they're done. He's There's done. Much, yeah. Exactly. It's much different from, say, a Rob Manfred, sure, uh, Roger yeah. Goodell, uh, something like that, where it's like, well, you know, they're, those teams aren't folding. Those owners aren't saying, I'm done. Right. When right, they're right. done, they just sell their billion dollar property. Right, of course. And, you know, everyone goes their separate ways and everyone's happy. Right. Here, it's like, oh, I'm done. If it folds, it folds. Rick White has done a fantastic job. Uh, and he's trustworthy, especially if something's being released through him uh, officially. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, obviously, if he's given what we're asking him, uh, if he's gracious enough to respond, we'll definitely take it. Um, but the other thing is. Uh, oh, yeah. I'd love to interview him. Right. Of course. Uh, and we definitely love to interview him. But uh, uh, obviously, his league's interest is going to be first over what we want from him. <laughs> All right, so moving on to the next question. Are any other teams planning on doing a stadium pass like Long Island? I believe Somerset is. I believe they sent out an email to the season ticket holders saying that they were. I may be a bit mistaken, but I've had a couple season ticket holders say, yeah, no, that's what the plan is for that. What I've heard from a couple people, but I don't know for 100% certain, but I'm about 95% confident on, uh, the rest of the Atlantic League teams are doing the same. So it's kind of an Atlantic League-wide policy. Only Long Island was smart enough to bill it as, look at what we're doing. So they know how to work free press. <laughs> right. I mean, they know how to work free press and get guys like us to talk about it. But yeah, so I definitely think that, I think, like you said, Somerset's going to do it. Um, and that's what I heard as well. They might not. Uh, we'll see what happens. But overall, I think the more teams that do it, the better, because it's a really great thing, both for the teams and for the league in general. You're drumming up interest. You're going to get more season ticket holders. And the pass is just awesome to be able to go to, you know, have season tickets for one team and then go to all the other teams. And it's just awesome. And I know uh, it's something that, uh, you know, we would certainly be interested in if the league, if it happens league wide, it might be worthwhile to get a season ticket plan and then kind of go from there because you can jump to every stadium. And that would be really cool. Exactly. It's definitely beneficial and is one of those policies that's, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander type thing, oh, like yeah. a lot of things in independent league baseball are. You just want to get bodies in the ballparks. It doesn't necessarily matter who it is as long as they are there, and the more, the better. Yep. So, thank you for the questions there, because I know they all came in in one solid block of email. So, all right, so it's Ottawa. Will Ottawa get an ALPB team? So this is what we were saying during this update section that we're going to talk heavily about Ottawa. Yep. Because there's about three or four questions on Ottawa. I say maybe, but doubtful. Yeah, I agree. I would say it's a possibility, right? I mean, OSEG is a really, really professional organization that can probably potentially bring this, especially because the lease is headed toward them. But I agree with you 100%. If it's going to happen, it would surprise the heck out of me because the Atlantic League is not really, like we said, expanding toward Ottawa. It would be a huge travel expense from Sugarland and High Point and Gastonia uh, to head up to Ottawa. And the other thing is, 
the stadium isn't really an Atlantic League stadium traditionally, so that's not yeah. great either. Yeah, in 1993, it's an Atlantic League stadium. Of course, yeah. But it's 2020. 27 years in between those two dates. Ooh, so that's yeah. a major concern there. Mm-hmm. Moreover than that, though, like we were talking about beforehand, um, before we start recording, there's not only visa issues with oh, yeah. that you bring in now having Canada there, so now you have to have every player not only have a passport to get to Canada, but also be able to work in Canada. So that's another issue, which, as we know, the Atlantic League has had visa issues in the past. They have, yeah. Uh, look no further than Jimmy Paredes and Edwin Espinal on Somerset this year. Now, yeah. those are much different levels of problems, but it's still a visa issue, and it's still going to be a problem in Canada. And even more than that, like you're, like you're saying, if you have teams in the southern U.S., which is clear that's where they're targeting, with the latest two expansion rumors being the greater Dallas-Fort Worth area— and Mobile, Alabama, those aren't exactly northern cities. And it makes very little sense to put a team up in Canada where your closest team is going to be probably either York or Lancaster to them, which is at the very least a 9 to 10 hour bus ride or probably about a 2 hour flight. So it's not exactly convenient or easy to get there to a mass stadium to a city that has a checkered history with baseball. So it's not exactly an Atlantic League site. And as I said last week when we looked at Mobile, there's three things that you can normally tell mean, oh, they're interested. Recently departed affiliated team, Ottawa doesn't have it. Major League Hall of Famers involved with the project, Ottawa doesn't have it. So already off the bat, there's two check marks there. And the third one is an unconventional city. That's not terribly unconventional because three or four teams have tried it. I'm right. just I'm just saying it do, it doesn't have that makeup there even though it technically does have the seating to be worth it. It has seating. But it just I don't plus the location the state like we've talked about Ottawa in depth and the problems oh, with that particular times, yeah. yeah with that particular state actually I think that was the main focal point of our uh, the last episode we did before we went on the month long hiatus. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so if you go back to that, one, I think it's like episode 22, 23, something like that. Yeah. We go kind of in depth about all the problems that present itself with Ottawa. And those problems are significant enough where they won't deter some leagues, but it will deter an Atlantic League. I think it will deter an Atlantic League. I think, uh, like we were talking about before, the American Association seems primed for that type of uh, a stadium because uh, it kind of fits in with what their mold is, and it's a lot closer to a lot of the teams that are up there. So American Association, I can see the Frontier League, if they need a team real quick to, to perhaps grab up there if they want to expand. But like I said, American Association, I just, unfortunately, I don't see the Atlantic League wanting it for all of the reasons that we've listed and many more. So I just, uh, I, I hope hope that they get something done because I know there's a lot of fans up there who really want to see baseball and soon. Uh, so and that goes into our next question. But certainly, uh, as you're going to point out, I think the American Association will be prime. Yeah. Now, plus, you already have the Winnipeg owner involved with uh, OSEG here, too, right. which makes it a lot easier to go. He owns a team in this league. They'll probably go to this league. That's how this works for indie ball. It, you can own multiple teams. I mean, Aldoso owned a third of the damn Can-Am league towards the end there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I think that when you have things like that happening, you know, 
it's it a lot of times is useful because we've seen how well it's actually worked out for Dorso and, and both teams to have him owning it because it has created this kind of rivalry and also this kind of camaraderie. So I think that being in partnership is, is always can be a good thing. Obviously, you want to make sure that um, everything's on the up and up. But as long as it is, it can be a very good thing. And I think, again, the American Association is the smart landing. What is the status of the champion? Technically speaking? They still exist. Yep. The Ottawa Champions Baseball LLC is still very much alive. Practically speaking, they're dead. I mean, like, it's one of those things where an OCG said we're going to be doing a new branding, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, technically speaking, they are alive. Technically speaking, there is a baseball team in Ottawa. However, that particular baseball team will be thrown out of the stadium as OSUG and uh, Mr. Katz are going to take over that ballpark. So, yep. yep. So technically he's still alive, as you're saying, but they're not going to be called the champions. I think baseball in Ottawa has a very good chance of continuing, as we've been talking about, but probably not under the champions moniker. Yep. So that's what that is. We'll continue on with kind of the expansion, a new team trend, as it were. What are some possible expansion spots? We're not going to include the 42, the New York Times 42. FI. Right. Just some other general ones. So ones that I kind of thought of off the top of my head and that makes sense. Atlantic City, we do know, and this is just kind of across all the three major leagues now. Atlantic City makes sense. Frontier and and Atlantic, obviously. Bolton likes it a lot. Uh, The city has had both uh, Can-Am and Atlantic in the past. Clearly, there's favoring one league over the other. Atlantic would be a lot better. However, Frontier League, far from out of it. Minneapolis, American Association, Metro Millers, that one's probably going to happen, but they still need to present that whole idea to the city right. before they can even start building things, but they want it done for 2021. It's uh, You're really cutting it close here, bud. They're going to ram it through. They're going to ram it through last month. No, obviously, I think yeah. that pr- project's going to be extended, but I think, yeah, that one's getting done, probably. Yeah. Uh, Mobile, that's been talked about, but as we did our little update on Doubtful, the Woodlands in Texas, it's a general kind of suburb. I want to say it's either Dallas or Houston, but I don't know for certain. I've seen that being mentioned in the past of possibly building a ballpark over there and putting an Atlantic League team in there to be alongside Sugarland. And I think that may have some merit, seeing as clearly they want another team in Texas, the Atlantic League. Yeah. If you do get that brand new ballpark, it would fit nice. You'd have a rivalry with Sugarland. You could start to have the basis of, say, a either Western or Southern division. The kind of last ones I had, you said Nova Scotia there, which was one of them listed. Uh, P.I., so Prince Edward Island, possibly, but that's kind of a lower key type thing. Uh, Metro Dallas area, obviously Mesquite was talked about, they're going to want that. And then London, Ontario, I thought could possibly be. That's been some talk, but that's more of a Frontier League type thing. Uh, But yeah, those are the cities I'd look out for. I think those are the kind of leading candidates, just off the top of my mind real quick, for the three major ones. Right, a ton of other leagues that could go a ton of other places. But the the one that I do want to add in that I did rant about early on when the Can-Am League, then the Can-Am League was looking about it, is Old Orchard Beach. Yep. Only because of, like I said at the time, that tourist population in the summer could be a big boost because you don't only, you're not just dealing with the population center, but a lot of people who will be up in that area for Kenny Bunkport and other areas. So that's a place to look, um, that I could see it in the future, especially because that stadium might need renovations, but it is already built. So. 
Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense, too, for a Frontier League or something like that. It's on that level, and depending on what way you kind of want to target for your expansion, because we know they're, they're looking for uh, six teams by 2021, I think it was, for Dorso, which is a lot really quickly. I would have done more of a two every three years type thing, and your goal is to be at 20 by the end of the 20s. I think that would have been a lot easier. You integrate two every three years, you get solid footing, and then you move on. And just, it made a lot more sense, but, you know, who am I? Uh, any case, we'll move on. <laughs> we'll move on now to the following question. Do you think Southern expansion is possible? It specifically, it was Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Northwestern South Carolina, but I kind of made that just South Carolina in general. Right. I'm not sure about you. I think it's certainly possible. I think that's a market that's eventually going to be hit for independent leagues. Oh, yeah. However, there's the three major things I, I think are going to kind of scare people away. The heat, definitely. Yeah. That's a problem. Which will only continue to get hotter. Yep. Obviously, there's going to be less population density. That's going to be an issue in some areas. Some areas, yeah. Especially where independently teams are going to be in. Yeah. It's a lot easier to just dump a team in New Jersey where any given county has 100,000 people in it yep. and are fairly small counties. So, yeah. it's not, I mean, you can put a team in Sussex and it does well. Exactly. And that's one of the less populated that's ones. One and of it's the least still, populated ones, yeah. Yeah. And it still does very well. You could throw a team just kind of down the Jersey Shore and you'll do well because there's a million people at any given moment. Oh, yeah. That you could pull from and you could pull from other states and- yeah, so I, I I think you're right, especially because, you know, for a New Jersey or something like that, you're dealing with a smaller state, right? And so for these southern uh, states, there's a lot of them are geographically just larger, right? There's less population and they're larger. And so for me, I think that it'll happen eventually. You will definitely get to see uh, these teams moving in these leagues, moving into um, southern states. However, as you've kind of pointed out, I think it will take some time for people to kind of get over the initial scare of population and heat and find ways around it. Uh, but I, I do see in Alabama because there's already interest in it. I already I could see somewhere uh, with a little bit higher population. Uh, Mississippi, I'm not so sure. Yeah. South Carolina, I could see uh, particularly maybe even that northwestern uh, corridor that he's speaking of. I could see, and definitely a Kentucky I could see as well by like a Lexington yeah. or a college area as well. What's the capital of uh, Kentucky again? I, I never... Frankfurt. Frankfurt. Is it That's Frankfurt? It. Yeah, it's Frankfurt because it's always that weird one because you think, oh, it's probably like Louisville or Lexington or something, but it's Frankfurt. Right. Yeah. I could see possibly that if it doesn't have a team. Yeah. Tennessee and Kentucky are getting hit hard in the 42. So, I think that's it. Plus, also, you have to consider this much facility-wise. How many baseball stadiums are there in the South? How many are going to get built in the South? Plus, you're not just really, with the exception of really the uh, Atlantic League, you're not just dumping one team in the middle of nowhere. You're putting a couple teams there for the ease of travel. Right. I mean, that was one of our concerns with the whole merger that happened recently. If you're going to then tack in, say, like Raleigh or Jackson, Mississippi, or any other place like that. Now you're adding on so much more travel time. I take, uh, yeah, I do want to amend my statement. If there's one place it'll be is Jackson, Mississippi. I can yeah. see a team in Jackson, Mississippi, but that's where it would have to be is in Jackson. That's my one caveat for Mississippi. I'm going to challenge that point in a minute when we Ooh. get to the question on the 42 teams. Okay. But for now, let's, we'll move on. You're right. You're absolutely right about that. I, I was, uh, I'm only talking considering the areas in which that are not in the, the 42. Yeah. 
if we're considering the 42, then well, it's, there's it's on the list to be eliminated and low attendance. Yeah. So we'll, so. we'll, we'll see. Well, to the next question now. What are the odds of the new Marshall Stadium gets an indie ball team? I think that it's possible. I don't think it's impossible. I think that you've got a shot of this happening. However, I think, as we've talked about, there are a lot of sites that would be, you know, really important for potential expansion. And I just don't know if if Marshall is this one. And I think a lot of it is dependent upon how good this stadium is built, how well it's built, and how much Marshall is really interested in using it uh, in this way. I think the university's willingness to go out and sell it in some way is yeah. important to to that idea as well. You know, I, I agree with that too. Uh, I think the major issue is it's a, it's a Division One program. I'm not sure how keen they are in giving it to an indie team. I think it sees about 3,500 roughly. So that's too small for the Atlantic League. Yes. it's It needs about another 500 to 1,000 more seats to realistically be in that conversation. So it makes it prime for the Frontier League. I'm not sure how much, because I know that there has been on and off talk of Frontier to specifically West Virginia, specifically Huntington. I could see it, yeah. However, it just, there's something about it that just tells me I don't think so. I'm not really sure what it is. It's just kind of a sense where I'm just like, I'm not sure about it. I I may just be because it's West Virginia, but I just, I, I can't see a team in Appalachia. I, I, I could see a team in, in Appalachia if, again, like I said, the university and Huntington itself is really interested in having that. And only if. They're really interested in having. Oh them. yeah, no, they're dependent on what the co- what the colleges want. Yep. If the col- if Marshall's like, yeah, we built this new stadium, and we built it for our baseball program, you know, get out of here. Then, oh, you know, that could be. Yeah, it's not going to happen. But if if the university built it with putting a team there in mind, and they'll put any team from any league mm-hmm. in there, pretty much. Well, at least as long as it's one of the big three. Well, you know, then I can see it. Yeah, then it makes more sense. But, but I don't I just, know if it would succeed there, even. I, yeah. I don't know how the population works. I don't know how much... I mean, we'd have to do research, of course, if this was something... I mean, we have suggested it before on the show, Yeah. but nothing has moved on it, and that tells me that it's not really a spot that's in such serious consideration at this moment in time. Doesn't mean that it can't become, but at this moment in time, it seems a little cooled off. Yep, plus... The stadium's so far away from being uh, actually constructed. It's only starting construction in October, yeah. like this past October. So, I mean, we're only two months in on it. So, it's still plenty of time on that front. And I think we can kind of summarize by saying it's a bit mediocre there. And it also depends a lot on what happens with MILB. If you lose all them, all the MILB teams in West Virginia, it's either going to open the game and go, look, there's an opportunity, or go, oh, wow, they couldn't even survive in this state. One of those two reactions, and I'm sure one of the leagues is going to have the reaction of, hey, look, an open market, let's take it. Yeah, probably Frontier League, especially if they're looking to add six teams. My goodness. Yeah. Let's talk about more on that MILB with uh, which of these MILB 42, so the New York Times 42, the 42 teams listed in the New York Times, which one of them have the best chance to make it as an indie team? Not necessarily go independent, not go to this weird dream league that we know absolutely nothing about. Just sounds like the Atlantic League, which that'd be a kick if the Atlantic League has turned into the dream league. 
Uh, but we'll get into the actual question. Yeah. Um, and so do do what what teams? And so you have a yeah, one I, that was really high on my list that I really, really, really think would work is uh, in Binghamton. Binghamton. I think yep. Binghamton would really work. I think the area up there is good. I think the uh, Rumble Ponies, as they yep. are now called, is uh, you know a, an organization that has a lot of support in the area. Maybe it's not showing up all the time on the way that their, uh, you know, fans have always showed up to games because of, especially early in the season, it's still cold yeah. up there. But I do think that that is a, a team and a town that can support in an independent league team. Yeah. So with all the ones that I kind of listed out here, I kind of went off the assumption that they were going to lose at least a thousand fans from their total. So if they want to end like the bare minimum 2,700 a game, I just kind of said this won't survive. Right. I think that was a fair number there. Binghamton was in the 3,000 range. I think that makes sense as a Frontier League team. I think that could work still. Chattanooga was another one. I'm really high on that. I think that one could really work. It's a fairly large city. Yeah. It has a deep baseball history. I think if, if let's say, the Atlantic League, for example, wanted to make their push into, like, more of a northern area, that would be the place to go. I think, again, though, that's an American Association or a Frontier League team. I think that would do really well there. Uh, Williamsport, they're the lone exception on my uh, attendance rule. I think Williamsport and Lowell also, but I'll get to those in a minute. Those two were low on attendance, but Williamsport just... Has, it makes sense that it would have a baseball team there. I uh, I just can't see it not. I it may just be blind optimism. It may <laughs> just be because they're kind of in this weird quasi zone of being in the middle of Pennsylvania. Yeah, but it just makes sense there. Well, I think it makes sense if you you think about the history that is. Yeah, you know, baseball in Williamsport, obviously with the Little League World Series. So, I uh, know I do think, especially because the Little League World Series comes every year during the season. Yeah, uh, it makes sense to have the team there. That and I think they can draw. They can draw, and I think an indie league team can certainly draw there, even if it they don't have the biggest names, because you're just going to have the kids who are there, and they're going to want to go watch baseball when they're not playing it in part of this tournament. And I guarantee you. That oh yeah, no, the time where they should be playing. Is not necessarily during, because when you're there, the concern that I have is you have people that are going, well, we already watched so much Little League today, do we want to go watch more baseball? Right. My thing would be- Before you have, after, yeah. Exactly, and just totally there, and also you have a lot of young kids, which I think they want to be in, particularly the players and the players, like, uh, family, they want to be kind of enjoying the whole amenities of that whole Little League complex. I would, plus you also have the, uh, Little League Classic that Major League Baseball does there too, which I imagine, regardless of what happens with the crosscutters, is going to continue, because that's been such a rousing success. Yeah. You put it at the very end of the Little League tournament, and at the very beginning, that's when I think you gotta hit it, because you can get people that still aren't tired of baseball, and the people that want to catch a game on the way out of town. I think that's those are the people to hit, especially as these guy the younger teams get eliminated uh, in Williamsport. I think it's also mm -hmm. interesting if you have an event, you know, each team that gets or when every once everybody's eliminated, you have a big ceremony. I don't know if they do it; they might do it. I don't know, um, but you know, something invite everybody to the game. So it'd be interesting to see what happens there uh, with Williamsport, just because I I do like it as a location. Uh, State College was another one, just because you have Penn State there. I think you can make it work. Mahoning Valley. They drew well, so that's why I put them there. Although I could see them easily not making it as well. Erie is another one. They've been 
They've had a history of baseball, both independent and affiliated. I can see it working. Again, attendance-wise, it makes sense. I think the Seawolves could transition. Yeah, I think the Seawolves could transition. They're a big name in in, in uh, minor league baseball, so you know it doesn't kind of make sense uh, that they're even getting cut. But okay, you know <laughs> if they're going to get cut, fine. Then you put them in independent league, especially if you put them in Atlantic League. Uh, I think they could could work definitely. So the next city rapid fire through them. Uh, Frederick they drew well. Uh, Frederick Keys there. They're in the uh, Southern, not Southern Atlantic. They're in the Carolina League. I forget who their affiliate is with, but they drew very well, and I can make, I can see that. Lexington, Kentucky. That screams Frontier League to me. Get a rifle for Florence. You know the Florence Fossil Jockeys. Key Mountain Vibes are also another one. Uh, they're located in Colorado Springs, so. If a team wants to go west, that's a great place to be. Uh, and then uh, a couple of places where that would make sense in lesser leagues, like a Pecos League, that new Western uh, Pro League, maybe even Pacific Association, something like that. The Lancaster, California, the Jethawks, and the Ogden Raptors. Uh, those are another one that I could see making sense. Utah and California are the two locations on those, so... It, they would make sense if they draw enough where I could see it, but it just doesn't make sense for any of the three major ones. It's too far west. Right, yeah. I mean, too far west. And it, it, actually, I, I would be interested to see a California league, a league in, in the west and the Pacific Northwest as well. Mm-hmm. You can be in that area. I would love to see a league start up there because that would be kind of cool um, to have a west, um, you know, more prominent West Coast league. Yeah. All right, so we'll move on to the next question now. We return to the Frontier League and talking about the New Jersey Jackals. And what do the Jackals do to repeat as champions? What I think they have to do is keep, as we were saying, they got to keep a lot of their key pieces. They got to keep their coaching staff in place. I think that's very important. And I really do think that they need to return their good players, you know, uh, keep their pitching strong. Uh, and, and then once they have that all sorted out, they should be able to move forward uh, pretty well. As you're saying, you think that based upon your sources, it looks like some folks are going to stay. And if they are, well, you know what? Then they might just repeat. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. If they come back, if those uh, players come back, just go heavy on offense. You're gonna you lose. So, yeah. yeah, you're gonna lose stock in Wenrick unless you want to use uh, your final exemption on one of them. Which I'm gonna guess they're going to hold off on that final one until they find the guy. So all you'll need is a catcher. Uh, depending on if Ward comes back or not, has second baseman. Then your infield's pretty much good because you'll have Marte, you'll have uh, Chirino there. I guess first base is a bit of a hole too, but they could figure that out fairly easily enough. They're returning other guys like Harris in the outfield, Moore in the outfield. Just go heavy on offense would be my suggestion for them. A lot of these pitchers aren't going to be used to seeing you, so they're not really going to know how to deal to you, so you'll have that as an advantage. Pitching-wise, just do what you did last year. Get one or two reliable starters, which if Tessitore and Butler can continue with what they were doing, I see that as pretty reliable and decent enough one-two punch, especially if Tessitore takes that next step, which I think is fair enough to expect from him. Yep. Keep building up the bullpen. You're going to return Brammer. You're going to return Reese. So off the bat, those are two solid bullpen pieces. What exactly is happening with some of the other solid bullpen guys we've seen in the past? Maybe you make a deal to pick up some uh, guys we saw last year. I'd like to see them. Uh, I know they probably won't be able to do this, but if they could get a guy like a Tim Ponto, like a Robbie Gordon, 
Oh, and then who's the who's the one other pe- Oh, James Mullery. Right, right. James right. Mullery's the other one from Rockland. If you get one of those three or someone that's very similar to one of those three, you have a solid one, two, three punch in that bullpen. You can run this really effectively. You just need like three competent starters with three good bullpen arms. I really like it. Plus, Agreed. if you get like a Matt Dallas back too, oh yeah, that's a nice that's a nice little bridge guy, middle reliever that you can use to kind of eat some innings with. I I think that could work, and I think that's where you got to aim for. Go heavy on the offense. That's how you won last year. You can <laughs> definitely outslug just about anyone, and yeah. I think that's how you got to go about that. I agree. I agree with that. I think the offense will be key. Uh, I think they need to pick up some, like you're saying, tactically and strategically pick up arms that they have that'll be very useful. However, like you said, I think you got to go all in on offense. However, in that strategically, that little nugget you had early on where they might be getting a big name guy, hmm. uh, that might be uh, put them over the edge there. Oh, yeah. No, with that, if you get that big name, I'm not even sure who it is. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't find that out. But if you get that big name, you get all those other guys back. Great A stuff. Yep. Going out to the Atlantic League. Do the Patriots need to change the way they build their roster to get back to their winning ways? I like that question a lot. It's a very good question. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. See, for me, I'm really conflicted on that one. Because it very well could be, yes, they do, because they go too heavy on pitching and they never have the offense it takes to get over the hump. And that's been the case now for a couple of years. At the same time, though, this was just a very injury plagued year that they got some really bad bounces with, and they le- they definitely lean too heavy in the pitching this year. I don't think anyone's going to really debate that because you saw once you lost your Kubiaks, your Oberholzers, um, Dormady, I think was the one that left. If not, it's the, the one other guy I can't think of his name right now. Uh, but you also lost Antonini for a while. You lost some other bullpen guys for a while. Yeah. Once those guys started to evaporate, you really saw the flaws come out. And if you fell behind by more than three, we all kind of knew this game's done. So they obviously need to add that one big bat. <laughs> right. I think they need one big bat, but I but I also think they need to, uh, like you're saying, it, it's hard to say if they need to change their strategy because what they've what, because of the way that the Atlantic League is now structured with a lot of guys leaving because of this agreement with Major League Baseball, you're going to see a lot of turnover mid season, more so yeah. than you've ever seen. And because of that, I think it's only you know, fair to say that it's, they might need, you know, a little bit more focus on offense because if they have that focus on offense, they might wind up being in really good shape as opposed to, you know, if they, they focus more on pitching and then all those pitchers, like you're saying, lead. Yeah. eh, Not good. Plus with those rules, well, specifically the mound that supposedly is not going back, but may go back. And we don't really know one way or the other at the moment. And just a bunch of difficult things like with the pickoff and the wild pitch thing and all these other little rules that make it tougher on the pitching and defensive side. There is that argument to be said, you go on offense because offense is never going to change that much. It's just going to get easier for you. So if you go with offense, you'll have uh, more longevity with that. Plus, there's also the school of thought that says, you can't win a 0-0 game, but you can win a 23-22 game. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but it de- it definitely has some merit where you can't just go all around pitching. So I don't think they necessarily need to change it away from like the ground up and just knock it down and start from scratch. I don't think that's certainly not the way they should <laughs> no, no, no. at all. But I, I do think they need to start going, okay, well, maybe we don't need 
six starters. Maybe we should go to like the standard five man rotation. Right. Three starters that are really solid that we can depend on and then get like two or three good bullpen arms that we can depend on. Get a little risky on the other bullpen guys and on the back part of that rotation and invest more time and resources into getting a more uh, offensively dominant infield and outfield. Because really, who this year could you say, yeah, they're the offensive MVP? Kanger, Espinal, and Paredes. That's about all I got. And pretty much Espinal by the end of the year. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, no, I think you need to have some guys who aren't going to be, most importantly, I think on offense, they need to make it so they have guys who aren't necessarily going to be the big time big name guys, they're going to hit a bunch of home runs or tell the Nashes, because those guys are going to get scooped up. What they need is veterans who are going to produce at a high level consistently offensively, and like you're saying, be be willing to outmash some teams, but still having that pitching and defensive focused mindset, yeah. because it's been so successful for them in the past. Exactly. I think I think to kind of get to the root of the question, just to kind of put it to bed once and for all here, I think their philosophy is fine. I think what, and they want to win by small ball. I think you can still definitely do that. It's yep. not the most analytically friendly thing, as it seems like get on base and hit a home run is really where it is now. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, three base hits is meh if it doesn't drive in a run. Right. But that could all swing back around. Exactly. And I'm more importantly than that, though, they just weren't getting guys on base. So you just got to get them on. Right. And currently what doesn't help you is a ground out to the shortstop. So I think you can make it work with a bunch of guys that are all batting, you know, like 280 and getting walks and playing like that. You can right. play that way and win. But what you can't do is have guys that are ineffective in that role. And I think really what it comes down to is either change the philosophy, which I don't agree with. I think you can win with that. Like a, and saying, and just get the right players for to play that way, or keep getting the same players, but change your philosophy in the, it's a long ball, or it's an out, which is a very live by the sword, die by the sword way, and with the way your ballpark's structured, I'm not necessarily sure that's a great idea, and again, it just, when you do something like that, you're really saying, if we go on a cold streak, we're so screwed. Right. And there's nothing we can really do about it. Just to um, kind of point out what you're saying, yeah, I think the philosophy is great. I think they're a, a high-class organization. I think they get good talent. They have really good people in good positions. Califer family is very smart in terms of who they bring in. I would just say that they don't need to change their philosophy. I think the only thing they need to change is getting guys in who can fill those roles. I think last year it was injuries. It was too much turnover. The first, I mean, let's... Let's not act like the first half of the season didn't happen. First half of the season, they were still a great team. Oh, yeah, no, they were very close. I mean, they were, they were that bad series against Long Island at the end away. They yeah. were just like, they caught the one day where Kubiak wasn't David Kubiak. Right. And was a normal pitcher and surrendered four runs, which you can't really put on him because when he is throwing at an ERA of two, that's not on him if he has a bad start. That's <laughs> right, on the yeah. offense for not providing run support and Ever. Brad Jody for not pulling him out after I think it was either five or six going, my pitcher's on the end of the line and we can all see it here because he's giving up a lot of hard hit base hits. And it's a matter of time before someone gets the timing right. And then we're really in trouble. Yeah, so just to, to wrap that up, I don't know if there's a need to be a change in philosophy, but I think there needs to be a, a, a change in the approach. A change in the approach and, and overall looking at what's going on organizationally and kind of thinking about what direction they want to move in in the future to become that successful team that they've always been. 
Alright, so with that, we'll move now to kind of a bunch of general questions and then some questions about us, and then we'll be at the end of the line. What must indie ball teams do to increase their attendance? I like this question too, because we talk about this a lot, and there's yeah. always some pushback whenever we talk about it, because those episodes don't do as great, because it's more business-oriented, but... right. I personally find it enjoyable to talk about, like, I how too. are you going to try and draw this in? Because there's, there's that whole other aspect away from the field that doesn't get talked about enough that really is where the challenge kicks in yeah. for these leagues. Because baseball is baseball for the most part. Right. Unless you're playing the Atlantic League, in which case it's a clown <laughs> show. But, yes, well, fair. But there's always going to be a pitcher throwing a ball and a batter trying to hit it with a bat to get yeah. on base to try and touch every base, then touch home plate again, and win the game. That's always going to be, generally speaking, the same. But off the field, you know, it's just totally different here. So for me to increase this kind of attendance, it's a mixture of the promotions. You need a lot of that. A lot of community engagement. We've talked about in the past, too. Who you target is important, too. Just random, single, middle-aged folk is a terrible strategy. What's a good strategy is to go after families. Older folk, even, are a terrible idea, although that's a bit more touch-and-go. Right. Uh, you got to do that in the right spots. Yep, exactly. But obviously, uh, younger folk are a bit more touch-and-go. It's You're going to be dealing with uh, a bunch of other distractions, and baseball isn't really the hip thing, but it is. It is good for like a date night or something like that. Yeah, certainly. So I think really focuses mainly on marketing. You have to market correctly to those people. You have to make it affordable. You have to provide some sort of promotion or some draw. You have to be either giving away t-shirts or uh, having some sort of celebrity or local celebrity there that people want to meet or something like that. You need a draw. There needs to be something more than the game. And I think that's why you see like a Long Island or a Somerset be really successful. There's another draw there besides the game. The game's almost supplementary to the experience. Yeah, I agree. I think the game is supplementary to the experience. And so to answer the question kind of directly, do need to do to increase attendance exactly. And I think the, the point that you make is important that they need to promote. They need marketing. They need all that stuff. But the second thing that they need that is, I think, essential to what they need that they do is they need to have fans interact with and feel like they are part of this community. They need to have this experience when they go to the ballpark. 100% agree. That is all about, I'm here because I am part of this community. They need to feel that tug at the heartstring. Like when you go, when we go to a Somerset Patriots game, we feel like we are part of this community, part of this family, not just another fan at another game, because that's where they can make their difference between a New York Yankees or a New York Mets game and a Long Island Ducks and a Somerset Patriots game because it feels more realistic and it feels more like they're a part of that experience when you're on a first name basis with the people that work there and the people that are playing that makes a difference agreed the community is so important with these things because they're not in these major metropolitan areas they're in these smaller suburbs they're in these little no-name towns in the middle of kansas or wherever it may be yeah they're they're so critical because they are the entertainment for that. I mean, how many times we went to a Sussex game and we've seen what seemed like the whole county turn out. Right. I mean, they are like the the only thing that brands themselves as we are Sussex. We are this. They get into the community. They get involved, whether it be giveaways, whether it be hosting other events at the ballpark and the players yeah. are there, whether it be, you know, doing what other various things they are. It, it's important to get the faces on the field 
in the community and to kind of interact and intertwine them. I think that 100% with what you're saying is is how you got to do it, to draw that attendance in. Yeah, pe- people need to feel like they're part of it. And, and once you feel like you're part of it, then you can really, uh, you know, have a great experience um, and become part of it. Let's move on now to some of the questions that are more about us, and they are kind of what all we have to wrap up here, so it'll be fairly quick about them. One of the questions was, how long have we been doing the show? Well, that's about a year. We started February 1st was when we recorded the first episode. Not terribly good, but I mean, (laughs) we've had about 40 episodes of practice so far, so they keep getting better. They keep getting better, yeah. Which is the goal, and obviously, when you look back on the things you did, you're like, oh god, I I published that? I let the public see and listen to that? Oh boy, yeah, yeah. And then you go, well... That's all part of the process of getting better. Absolutely. I agree. And I, I think, yeah, it's about a year for us and it'll be a year February 1st and yep. we'll do something special for that. Yep. Uh, we might do a special episode for that. Uh, yep. That could be really fun. But yeah, so it's been a year. It's been a good year. And yep. I think a, a transition year uh, and a big year in, we started to do this in a really big year in minor league baseball and independent league baseball. So we picked a great year to start. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. We got all of the fun stories. I mean, what was it, like a third or fourth episode we were talking about this landmark deal where you had the Atlantic League and the Major League Baseball joining together and it's been a crazy year. It has been. Yeah, so it's been very fun. So to answer your question, we recorded the first episode on February 1st. It was uploaded on February 2nd. What experience do we have in baseball? Yeah, so uh, obviously I've been uh, involved in baseball my whole life. Um, my dad, my brother, uh, they played it uh, all through, you know, their younger years into high school, uh, a little bit beyond. And so for me, it's always been I've played baseball my whole life, uh, starting when I was, you know, five, six years old, um, and then all the way through. And so I think I've, I've really got an insight in the game as someone who's played it. Um, but also as a fan, I mean, I'm, my first Somerset Patriots game was, uh, 2002. Uh, so, uh, so I've been doing it, you know, listening to Somerset Patriots games and going to Somerset Patriots games for a long time. And so that's got me into that indie ball portion of it. And I've played baseball. I've coached baseball. Uh, so I've done a whole lot uh, within the game itself. So I have some insights within that. And I think that through that is why we're so passionate about doing this. And that's why it was such a natural fit for us when we were deciding to do this, uh, because we did love the independent league so much and we'd gone to so many games for me, especially it was, well, I have this really, really great experience in the game. It's given me so much. Why don't I give something back to other people and talk about these fantastic leagues? My only experience as a fan, I just enjoy watching. I've been watching baseball for forever. There's just something about independent leagues, and I'm going to answer the next question because you started to dive into it. How did we get into indie ball in general? There's just something about being separate, being different, and seeing like these kind of middle-of-the-road guys that you don't know their names. They're not on TV. They're not having you know their name on the back of jerseys or anything like that. There's just something about it that's kind of like this almost like a rebel league type thing yeah. that's not really what it is but it is in a way i suppose but there's just always been that draw to it and have like these kind of minor team names and whatnot and having like this own like being its own separate thing there's something about that i was like yeah that's cool 100 percent. like major league baseball is fun it's great i mean you're gonna have the best talent there and if you're going for just the best of the best that's where you're gonna be but there's just some allure about it there's just certain things to independent league baseball that's the draw there. Absolutely. I think a lot of it is the story for me. I mean, it's a, it's the story of these guys who struggled and grinded their way through 
high school and then college and then they got a cup of coffee in double or triple a and then they kind of fell out and now they're trying to work their way back and there's something so great about playing baseball just for the love of the game like these guys do and also playing baseball because they feel like they owe something to these communities that have supported them and they're chasing this dream i think that's what the allure is for me is one it's this rebel league and two you've got these rebel guys who aren't willing to quit on their dream even though everybody says they should Oh yeah, no, it's it's the whole redemption aspect of it and the the clawing to get back and just the passion you see in these guys is just awesome. And one thing I'd like I'd love to do, but I'd also love to watch it too. That way I could enjoy it because whenever you watch or read or consume anything you create, you're just critical of it. And one thing I'd love to see is almost like a last chance you were following them around. Like what I'd love to see, and this would be a terrific idea for the Atlantic League, and feel free to steal Atlantic League. If you put like just a small, like, three or four man crew to follow the Road Warrior team this year and put out, like, would be awesome. weekly 20 to 30 minute videos on YouTube following these guys around, almost like a last chance you type thing. Yeah. You could put them out weekly. You could wait until the season was over and then release them all and have more time to edit them down and, not, and everything like that. But I just thought that'd be amazing to watch what these guys are going through that are currently have the worst lot. In independent league baseball outside oh, yeah. the Pecos League, right. and mm-hmm. and to watch their struggle and watch their grind and see how much they go through and yet to do it anyway, just for the off chance that there's a scout watching that particular day that goes, I like that one play he made. I'm gonna put his name down and we're gonna watch him further. And then to get signed to be in Double or Triple A to then work their way up from that to watch all the behind the scenes of that. And to watch how these guys handle going from hotel room to hotel room to hotel room and just dealing with getting the snot kicked out of them day after day after day, I think would be amazingly compelling to watch. I agree. I think that would be really great to watch. And that would be an idea that they should steal. Yep. I think that would just make so much sense. Hell, I'll even make the thing. (laughs) I mean, I don't care. I'll give it a shot. What do I got to lose? Yeah, right. With that being said, we will go to our final question that we have. Question number 20 of 20. What other plans from the offseason do you have? Any interviews? All right, so we do have some offseason planning. I mean, there's definitely some that do exist. Currently, there are some interviews we do have planned. We need to work out some technical issues on our side, get some different equipment, figure out how to make that work. But there is a list of about six or seven different guys that we're going to have on the show at various points. Not going to reveal names at the moment, uh, just because we need to hammer everything out and get specifics. But once everything's good on our end and then we schedule it, then we'll definitely let you know and give you the kind of rundown of how that's going to go. Uh, other plans we kind of had, um, doing maybe like a creative team, a creative team episode. So if you're familiar with any of like the sports video games, there's always that creative team option where you go, you make the rosters, you make the stadium, you make the, the jerseys, the logo, everything. So team from scratch, something similar to that, where we'd pick like say, the Atlantic League or the Frontier League, add a team onto that and, uh, and just build it from scratch. Go by their roster rules. Go by all the regulations there. We'd pick a city, pick a team, build the whole thing straight from the ground. Similar, Something like that was a plan. Uh, create a league, something similar, where we'd pick, like, say, eight cities and design a team there and kind of explain what our league would be about. Uh, kind of an expansion episode, an episode that just focuses solely on where we'd like to see teams go. So similar to create a league, I guess, but a bit different. Right. 
uh, an update episode where we just kind of go through all our old topics, see if anything's changed in any of those friends, and just kind of update all of you. So more of a farther reaching thing to get everyone up to date. How to improve indie ball. That was going to be the topic of discussion for an episode as well. Uh, kind of a history anthology sh- episode. So a history of independent ball and what exactly it is. Uh, obviously, if you're listening, you kind of already know that. So that was more of a YouTube video idea than anything else. But right. it's still one that I thought could be interesting. Uh, kind of a clip show. So kind of like creating a narrative kind of a clip show. So take some of the best moments of the show, throw it up there and kind of <laughs> string it together. That could be kind of fun. So that was also up there for one. Redo the disposal drafts were another one. So both Ottawa and, of, uh, of course, New Britain. Right. So redoing and redrafting it in those fashions. Those are ones that we had planned and we may do fairly soon. I guess while they're fairly relevant. Yeah. Both of those. So either split them and do them in different episodes or do them on both on one one or the other yeah depends on the week uh some go heavy on some fan content that was another thing if you guys have suggestions would like to send the past we're definitely interested in hearing about it and doing it so that's definitely one uh maybe an episode where we bring up uh, some players that we could see in independently baseball like we'll come with each with five guys from say double a to major league baseball we'll try to keep it as realistic as possible yeah it's kind of like the article i wrote back in july or august just kind of discuss why we think they would be good in this league or whatever maybe something like that oh, and then the one i kind of came up with a little earlier today kind of doing like a march madness type thing with indie ball or like a national ranking one certainly one there because next year what i'd like to do you know how like with college football and basketball they have like the ap rankings and everything like that yeah i'd like to get one, something like that going for independent league baseball i think that would be really cool yeah yeah like get say pick your top 10 across all of independent league baseball and, or at least the three major leagues i guess it would right. be and get like uh three four maybe five other people that are heavy into the community like we are. I have some people in mind that I definitely like to ask to be a part of it, and I think they would totally be on board with it. Yeah. Uh, if you guys have other ideas for people you'd like to see involved with, like, a national ranking thing, let us know. We'll try to reach out and make something work with them. Yeah. And kind of get, like, our own media poll version of, like, these are the top ten in independent league baseball this year. Go hog wild with it. Yeah. It just seemed like a kind of a fun thing to do. Instead right. of doing like the standard power ranking, because everybody does that. Right, everybody does the power ranking. But I do think that it would be really interesting you do like the, the AP ranking. You could even yeah. create create like a point system. Yeah. Uh, like a like a like that old BCS system. That would be really interesting. Uh something to do as well. Uh and for, for me, what I, I really want to do over the off season while I have the time uh to do it and I haven't had too much time to work on these things, but is to really get a get a sense of why some of these players and maybe write a few articles about why some of these players really stick around in yeah. the indie leagues and, and, and even why they keep kicking around so just calling it a career yeah like 34 35 years old still going and, and get a sense of that psyche because i think those guys are so important to what the league is going to do and i think fans would love to hear that oh yeah no there's yeah. definitely a large section of our fans that want to hear these personal stories about these players yeah because i mean this is why you go to these are some of the reasons why our more devoted fans go yeah. to the games and obviously the amenities as we talked about is another big reason but certainly i think uh, these personal connections could be made and would only make this community even even tighter yep exactly 100 there and then the last idea which i remembered we were talking about doing this a while back and then it came up on twitter today from chris austin because he wanted us to talk about it and i said it's funny you mentioned this because we were planning on doing a whole episode about it because it's just such a big topic right is the idea of a super independent league where you will get 
all the leagues combined into just one giant league and just kind of divvying them up into like regional divisions like an eastern a midwest and a west type thing and only in this case we'd go by a league so like atlantic frontier and uh, american association type thing so create a giant one like that i think that's another one that definitely would be better for a full one as opposed to giving it five minutes on a you know, on an episode like right. this. Right, so yeah, yeah, Chris, we're not, we're not jipping you, uh, we're gonna give you an entire episode on that one, but, uh, yeah, no, absolutely, we need, uh, the time to talk about that, because that would be very interesting, and something that, you know, if this mystery, magical, you know, it's gonna happen or not, league, uh, that would consider those, consist of those 42 teams, or yeah, some the of I dream of, the I Dream of Genie League. Yeah, that league, if that ever happens, you can see that happening, where they take the best teams from other leagues, perhaps, but, uh, yeah, we'll see how that goes, but yeah, that's something to talk about for another episode all right and so with that we just ran through 20 questions ended a bit of an update section in about an hour and 45 minutes a very long episode which normally i'd say break it up into a couple episodes but being that as a q a it doesn't really work if you break it up so y'all just have to deal with a two hour long episode this week so kind of plug and get out of here because already it's long if you've listened to this whole thing and you ask questions, obviously you know that our Twitter handle is IndieBallPod on Twitter and our, on Instagram we're IndieBallReport. But if you didn't, now you know, so go follow us there. Also, in case you're wondering about these articles and things that we mentioned, you can find all our episodes, the show notes, as well as articles and videos on IndieBallReport.com. You can also find those videos on Indie Bar Report Podcast on YouTube. And if you want to, say, subscribe, rate, and review the show, you can do that on Google Play. You could do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podomatic, uh, TuneIn, Stitcher, really anywhere you can get podcasts, you can do that. So please like, rate, and subscribe those. We appreciate your support. We appreciate all the questions we received today, all 20 of them from, I believe, about seven or eight different people. Again, I apologize. I don't have the exact name to the question, but we do appreciate all the questions all the same anyway. And we do look, I had a lot of fun doing this episode. At least I think you did as well. Oh yeah, this was awesome. This was so much fun. And we will definitely be doing this again. Yeah. Uh, it was so successful, way more successful than I could have imagined. 20 questions is just amazing for our first time and we, could, we even got one more that we didn't get a, get exactly. a chance to you know go into because it was too long so I think that this is awesome this is something we'll do in the future depending on how you all like it and so moving forward maybe we'll have less and split it up uh, yeah. to a couple different shows but I really think this has been great uh, and of course follow Pinch the Blue Crab on Instagram gotta get that pinch mark in I guess we have nothing else left to add Nope. We said it all in two hours, so we'll end this show like we end every other show. Don't forget to play ball. <laughs>